Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Patrick, we were talking just a second ago. It's been a little bit of uh, time in between the last time we recorded one of these and it wasn't because we didn't try or didn't attempt. It was because there's been some kind of just, <laughs> it's like when it rains, it pours. Uh, sometimes the stars align and sometimes they disalign. And uh, the last time that we were supposed to record, um, I got in a car accident and my car did not get totaled, which was great. But uh, let's just say that it was my Jeep versus a Yukon, which is a massive GMC vehicle, massive SUV. And um, mine didn't win. It, it, it lost, <laughs> lost to that fight. But the good thing is, is that no one was hurt. My Both of my kids were not in the car at the time. Bad thing was, is that it was my wife and I, it was our anniversary, our 11 year anniversary. And we were going to dinner. We hadn't even made it to dinner yet and got in the accident on the way. So uh, yeah, sometimes life, life happens, but I'm glad to be back with you, Patrick. It's good to be here, Jay. And I think you're right. Life does happen. Normally we would say that shit happens, but we, we won't use that word. <laughs> right. Kids, um, kids show. <laughs> happens, and it's the stuff that turns out of the blue. You know, very often we're worrying and we're, we would have anticipation about something, but that's not the thing that really affects you. It's the, it's the bolt. It's the one yep. that you're not expecting. Yep. So worries, worries are often yeah. for nothing. Yeah, it, it, it is, right? You know, I've been di- digging a lot here recently um, into Stoic philosophy, uh, which uh, I came across because I'm really fascinated uh, with uh, just the Stoics. But um, Ryan Holiday is an author who does a lot of great work in this area, and I've been following him for a while now. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I came across what felt like some were some significant obstacles just in the way of life and work and all of these things that I'm mentioning here. And uh, I've been digging into it. And really, there's a key quote by Marcus Aurelius, uh, where he refers to the obstacle as being the way and how through these barriers, through these massive or what appear to be perceived as massive mountains, how while they present as obstacles and sometimes the mind of the human is just to say, well, there it is. Woe is me. I will sit at the bottom and look up at Everest, but there's no way that I can actually attempt to hurdle this thing. Uh, that That is such a detriment to who we are as humans, and it doesn't speak to the grit and perseverance of human and mankind. And so for me, I've been really thinking about kind of this stoic philosophy of, of kind of like two different things. Number one, 
is like seeing the obstacle as the way and not allowing ego to be the enemy, to attack it with a vengeance and say, this is only there to help me grow. I'm going to love this fate because it is only there as a mechanism for me to be a stronger, more fortified individual. And then on the other side is this concept that's spoken about in Stoic philosophy, which is memento mori. And memento mori is Latin for remembering that you're mortal. Or in other words, you're going to die. And life is way too incredibly short for us to sit here and to worry and to concoct worst case scenarios that will likely never happen when it could be that life could flee from us in the next moment ahead of us. And it would all be for nothing that we worried. And it's just remembering those concepts. And I would say that a lot of times it's easier said or thought of than done. But then when you actually start to think about these things, ponder them, journal them, really change your mindset around them, when your perspective changes like that, your mood changes. The way that you interact with people, the way you interact with yourself, it changes. And so I know I've, I've spoken a lot with uh, the, the Hanu following about a lot of my self-exploration lately, but I figured it kind of just bears repeating because we're always going to encounter these obstacles. And if we start to visualize and have the mindset that this obstacle is the way, not where let's try to figure out a thousand ways around it, but no, let's go after the obstacle. Uh, it's, it, it's just a really great great change in perspective for me. And I hope that other people will buy into that idea or at least try to rethink the idea of obstacles as being something that can actually help fortify and grow us instead of just provide as barrier. Yeah, I think it's amazing, Jay. It just kind of reminds me, I was watching a Netflix documentary last night. It's about an American football, if I remember his name correctly, T. Mantea. But uh, he was a Polynesian footballer who was playing for Notre Dame. I think it was, yeah, it was during his time with Notre Dame, he was catfished and he, he made friends with somebody online and he built this, up this relationship online and many, many messages over a period of time, many phone calls over a period of time. The person who was catfishing him said that um, he got a message via that his girlfriend, his supposedly girlfriend, that he had built up the relationship online had died. And he he suffered a torrent of abuse and he's really the victim in this. But I remember him saying he was he was very challenged going out onto the fields in the days after that and the months after that, and people were giving him a lot of abuse. And mm. he ended up talking to somebody, and the person said, yeah, he says, people are giving you a lot of abuse. And he said, but you're not here for those people. You're here for the one person. You are going to provide the inspiration. You are going to provide the role model. You are going to provide the motivation. It's, it's looking at this perspective, and really when you think about it, it changes everything. You know, so coming back to we can see things as an obstacle or especially when we are in our 20s and 30s, I think life is a little bit tougher then because you you don't have the experience. And I suppose you don't have the experience to realize that things do turn out okay. Things pass. Things pass. You know, and what you might feel has been an an awful event today. In a few weeks, it's less and it, it can pass very, very quickly. Coming back to the breath. This is where the tools of helping to regulate the autonomic nervous system can be very important. I was in Belfast there at the weekend, came back on Sunday night. We were giving a training. And at that was a couple of psychologists and people involved with trauma, including my dear friend, Tom Heron. 
And Belfast is really and was a centre for trauma in Europe because of the conflict that was going on for decades and decades. With all people, the talk was about trauma is the ghost. That's what you don't see. But what you see is typically the symptoms of trauma, the addictions, the gambling, the alcoholism, the workaholic, all of these people who are making themselves unavailable. But of all of these people, they have dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. So it comes back to... Mm-hmm. Do we perceive barriers and obstacles differently based on our past and based on our experiences? And also, do we see barriers differently based on the autonomic nervous system? Like, what's the measure of resilience? You know, people talk about resilience. Is that our ability to cope with the changes that happen, especially the unexpected ones? I think it's a very valuable question um, and takes a lot of exploration. The word resilience is thrown out there so incredibly often. Um, and when we think about, uh, you know, because one, one thing that I think that I have unfortunately fallen to the camp of is that I've really viewed resilience a lot through the lens of physiology. And I would say only through physiology at times, instead of always, instead of also looking at, uh, factors related to cognition and emotional well-being and emotional regulation, which I think are very much inextricably tied and intertwined with physiology. But, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people as a psychologist, it, you would think that that would be kind of my first route. And it used to be my first route is to think about resiliency through more of cognition and psychology and emotional well-being and regulation. But I've, I've, I've kind of got caught up in my own camp at times, which is unfortunate. I will have to be the first to admit. But when I think about resiliency, the two components that I think about are, yes, do we need to have fortitude and resiliency of the nervous system? And can it be conditioned to respond in a way that is, quote unquote, unnatural, or maybe be um, kind of against the grain of how we were designed or how we were evolved? And the answer is absolutely. So we can experience things like trauma or experience of anxiety, depression, any other type of mental health related system. And we condition the nervous system over a period of time um, that can happen, um, or we can have these kind of large T or big T traumas, these large scale events that cause a complete dysregulation of the nervous system. And then we continue to either confirm our own biases and the nervous system continues to be confirmed as to why it should be dysregulated. That happens. But also, too, another component of resiliency and another conditioned component of resiliency is the mindset aspect. It's the cognitive aspect. It's the emotional regulation aspect that comes from these deep core schemas that we develop, these deep core negative self-thoughts and negative self-perceptions, these feelings of inferiority, like these are all, again, inextricably intertwined with one another. And I, I, I've kind of come to the realization um, through just a lot of self-exploration and experience over the last few years, but also maybe even more the last few months, just at how incredibly important that if we were talking about fortitude, like we have to truly talk about autonomic nervous system fortitude or physiological fortitude, but also how is that intertwined with the fortitude of our mind? Um, And I always kind of, not always, but I would say that recently 
I was thinking more in times of like fortitude of, uh, of the body is the most important thing. Physiology, 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 because then that will help with the taming of the mind. And it's not that I don't believe that anymore. I do believe that the greatest first step that we can take is to learn to control our physiology uh, because that's the easiest place uh, for people to start because a lot of times people don't want to get into the mind. They don't want to get into cognition. They don't want to get into you know processing trauma, let's say. Um, so it's a great, almost like gateway or stepping stone. However, to either avoid or disregard the importance of that, I think is doing ourselves a big disservice. And so, um, yeah, I think resiliency is is much broader than just physiology. It's 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 there's a mental psychological component as well, and I hate that I feel like I almost drifted a little bit away from that over the years because I've been so ingrained in this world of biometrics and physiology and the importance of that. But then to remember that there are people that over the course of their lifetime have developed these unfortunate, deep ingrained schemas and negative self-talk and allowing themselves to like cognitively spiral down because of all these potential distortions in thinking and distortions in self-perception. Like those, those are extremely important if not the most important thing for overall fortitude and resiliency of, of the nervous system and in, in, in the way it, it it communicates to the body. So a little bit of my own kind of self-exploration there into some potential conclusions that I've come to over the last few months. It's very interesting though. Like So what you're saying in simple terms, the thoughts that we have are influencing the physiology, but our past experiences have also impacted our physiology. That's feeding back into the thoughts. And there was a quote that 80 to 90% of the communication is bottom up. But this mm-hmm. plays then a very important role in the psychological and psychotherapy field because very often there the communication is from top down. And what's been overlooked mm-hmm. is the bottom up component. You know, so I think anybody who's in the mental health field, they should be listening to this podcast because it makes total sense. If we can influence our physiology and we can influence it, you, you like sometimes, you know, when you're working with people with anxiety, they very often get anxious just even focusing on the breath. But mm-hmm. we can give them tools, simple breathing exercises that you don't even have to focus on the breath. You know, even yes. going for a walk with the mouth closed is one of the best things that you can do. If you go for a walk with your mouth closed, in effect, it's a breathing exercise. Because as you go for your walk with your mouth closed, your nose is imposing resistance that's two to three times that of the mouth. So by breathing through your nose, you're adding an extra load onto the diaphragm, which helps to strengthen the diaphragm, but also helps with better recruitment. And again, that's a very understudy thing. You know, the connection between the diaphragm and the mind and the phrenic nerve. And when we think of the words, I think I mentioned it last time, schizophrenia, schizophrenic. It's the, the mind-body connection. So much. I would say uh, enough for maybe a few PhD degrees, right? (laughs) And the great thing (laughs) is, is that we are learning and we will continue to learn. It's funny because I think back to not that long ago, you know, when I was uh, doing graduate studies 
and the knowledge and information we had then, and then the knowledge and information we have now. And there are some courses that half the course would be being retaught um, because we're seeing things just from a, a different lens. Like we're viewing things from different angles. And so where it was like in my graduate studies, physiology was always secondary. Um, it was, you know, I was, I did my doctoral degree in psychology. So it was always secondary. Um, I don't think think, and again, this would be my guess, is that if I went to you know any type of, uh, of doctoral degree, a PhD degree in psychology, that I would see physiology as disregarded now. And it wasn't to say that when I was in school, it was disregarded. It just, there was not as much emphasis on it as there is now. And this is not that, that long ago. We're talking about you know a decade ago. So it's a very, very interesting shift, uh, but one that I think is vastly important. And the one thing that if there are therapists, clinicians, mental health practitioners that are tuning in, Patrick, is to not just say, I'm not going to be a lifelong learner and not revisit some of these things. I'm going to just take what I've learned and continue down that path. I unfortunately think you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice and not just yourself, but you're the, those who you see as clients, as patients, because uh, you know when we kind of stick to our guns and we say, well, I learned it this way. And so kind of we, or it's like you get caught up in that old saying of like, we've always done it this way. Well, that's right. If you hear yourself saying that, check yourself because you have to be lifelong learners. And this goes for everybody, not just clinicians, but we all have to be lifelong learners and be willing to challenge and rethink from the bottom up everything that we've learned. There's a beautiful book by a psychologist um, whose name is Dr. Adam Grant. And the book is called Think Again. It came out um, either last year or two years ago. Phenomenal book on how if we do not get into the mindset of saying, I'm going to challenge and rethink everything. And just because I learned it one way or was told something one way means that I can kind of just carry that throughout life. It is one of the worst positions that we can be in. um, And it's really not going to help us grow those who we serve. It's not going to help them to grow nearly as as efficiently as we could. Um, and, and it's just one thing that can cause us to be really, really stuck. So I uh, I will I will stop with my monologue from there. I get really hyped up when it comes to just us educating ourselves and rethinking and being willing to say like what I was doing or the way I was thinking, like while I had no bad intentions of doing things this way or thinking this way, it was just wrong. Like it was not right. And I'm a huge advocate for that. It's something that I try to instill in my kids. It's something that I try to live by as best I can. But I also realize that when we learn or think about things a certain way, if we have a certain ideology for us to move away from that is really difficult. And if our self, the identity is wrapped up in it, then it feels almost impossible. It feels like there's a level of guilt and shame about moving away from our ideology. It doesn't matter if it's our school of thought, if it's our philosophy of life, it's if, if it's our religion, like those are very difficult aspects of us who it's part of our identity sometimes to move away from. But my challenge to everybody and this is how I'll end the monologue for me, is just to ensure that you are at least willing 
to challenge yourself and to rethink some of these things because in the end, like we're not challenging or rethinking um, so that we can, you know, tell somebody else that they're right or say to ourselves that we're wrong. We're doing it as a level of self-improvement, but also as a way that we can best serve others in whatever our mission is, whatever our value system is, those goals that we have. Um, we don't have to be just self-centered about rethinking kind of the, the way we do things, the way we think about things, but this can all also benefit others. And if we can do that, well, we've, we've accomplished something in life, or at least I, I would feel like I've accomplished something in life, which, which yeah, is, is a, it's a good feeling. I'm just trying to think of myself when I started off with breathing 20 years ago, I would never admit I was wrong back then. Um, it's only after you've, you've done it for a few years and you start to realize that it's not going to work for everybody. It's not going to, you have to tailor it to people. You make mistakes. And as you, as you get a bit older, the few gray hairs that I have now, that kind of gives me an advantage that you're comfortable, you're more comfortable in your own skin and you're more comfortable to admit, yeah, you know what, there's things we've been doing that we've totally changed now and how I work now is way different to 20 years ago. But I'm just thinking if you have a therapist who's just graduated, their insight is going to be different to somebody who's after being spending 10 and 20 years and it's supposed to go with the flow with it. And there's something very human when you're saying to your students, listen, I'm not quite sure what the answer is here, but you know what? We'll, we'll do a little bit of exploration and something like breathing exercises and counseling. You know, the intention is good. And if it's done very, very gently, you're not going to cause harm, you know, especially with breathing exercises, mm -hmm. nose breathing, light and slow breathing. And it, it's a great part of the journey. And even with breathing, and I can only imagine the whole field of psychotherapy and psychology that has, mm -hmm. you know, the, the decades and decades that have gone into it. The field of breathing is enormous, you know, yes. and most of us have only, we've only scratched the surface, but you know what? That kind of keeps us going. That's the motivator. That's the That's getting the, the mastery to that. Part. We're never going to get the mastery of it. It's the exciting part of it. Totally. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. So never There's, be afraid yeah. to say that you've uh, messed up. Right. Yeah, well, 100%. Well, I think it's so exciting that we have only scratched the surface. I think about this in terms of uh, psychology and neuroscience and breath work. And uh, th these are things that like, we feel like we have some really great information on, but we do. But I guarantee there are things that I, um, I propose in my field, you propose in your field right now, that probably in five years, 10 years, we may completely say, I take that back. Like I I don't agree with it mm -hmm. because the science evolves, mm -hmm. research um, evolves. These are great things. These are things to be celebrated um, and, and, and it will help us to develop better therapeutics, better mechanisms of self-awareness. And so for me as someone, you know, who, who is a practitioner, but also um, owns the company that is Hanu, like for me, like it, it, it is, it may feel a little bit like the wild, wild west at some times, but I know it's for a reason. And I know that in the end, it will really pay off for people. It's going to help people for us to evolve and change. And if I have to come out on podcast or on some other method, if I'm doing a keynote speech somewhere and I have to say, when I started the company, this is the approach we took. This is how we interpreted data. This is how we practice, you know, different therapeutics of biofeedback and breath work. And we were wrong. I 
surely hope at that point my hubris doesn't take over, but I really say like I celebrate that. Like I'm excited that I was wrong. And the reason it isn't because I led people astray. I'm excited about that because I don't think necessarily I'll be using that tone. But the thing that I'm excited about is that we found out something different that we think is even better than what we were teaching. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just think the path or the roadmap for both what you, you do, Patrick, and what I do, um, is, is going to be one that is ever evolving, but all for good reasons. So I'm really excited, uh, about, about that avenue. The next five to 10 years, it's an exciting space at the moment. So it's all good. There we go. People will continue to tune in. Um, and the reason they'll continue to tune in is because they're already finding that, uh, you know, the things that we provide in the breathwork space are helpful. Uh, but what they're probably going to continue to find is that things that we provide are even more helpful, which is uh, really exciting. All right. So Patrick, I wanted to uh, talk real quick before we jump into the questions. So we'll just spend just, just a few minutes on this one because I get a lot of questions about this. I find it very interesting. Um, and it's something that I think about, I won't say a lot necessarily, but I do think about it, or at least like I put some things into practice that I wanted you to talk to you about. So the one thing that um, uh, I do a lot is travel. And I know that you are uh, someone who is not a stranger to travel as well. And we know that travel can really uh, impact overall lifestyle and our scheduling and the things that we do uh, simply by the nature of all the time that it takes with travel, being in an environment that's not yours, that's typically not as structured maybe as what we would have in our everyday you know, life. And so I wanted to talk to you about something that I'm asked about a lot, which is how do we approach breath work while we're traveling? So kind of the, a lot of the questions that are posed are like, when you, you know, before you get on a plane, do you do any breath work? When you're on the plane and maybe you experience some rough air or turbulence, do you do any breath work to handle anxiety? Is it appropriate maybe to do something after kind of a plane trip? And I have some really interesting things that I wanted to talk about simply because I have a lot of personal experience with travel, but also breath work and, and HRV monitoring during travel as well. And I'm curious to hear kind of your, your take on it. So I'll start kind of with some, some, some thoughts and then kick it to you, Patrick. The one thing that I'll mention is that for me, uh, let's start more on the kind of like monitoring my physiology perspective. So like uh, the question is like, have you ever kind of seen like what happens to your physiology when you get on a plane? I will be the first to say um, that because probably because I've been desensitized to it, when I travel, um, I typically don't experience much stress or anxiety in terms of like me thinking about like being 30,000 feet in the air and not in control of the plane myself, just kind of at the mercy of both nature and the individuals who are up there piloting the plane. And then also to all the other people in the plane who I cannot control, but I just don't have a lot of stress over that. It's not something that I think about a lot. Maybe if we hit a little, like not a little, but a lot of rough air, it might kind of come into my mind of like, uh oh, I feel myself bracing because I've had some like interesting, like bad weather travel where like things got really, really shaky really, really quickly. But for the most part, I don't think about it. But with that said, is that even though it's not something that kind of takes up a lot of cognitive domain, I have noticed that when I wear my Hanu and I'm measuring biometrics, 
Now, my body does respond differently in a plane than it would in my everyday kind of surroundings when I'm sitting here talking to you or I'm just kind of doing work in the office. I notice that my nervous system becomes slightly dysregulated, not as if I'm like experiencing significant anxiety, but I do see a marginal increase in heart rate. I see a marginal decrease in heart rate variability. I notice that my respiration rate tends to increase a little bit. So there is a bit of this condition response. And this could be just a self-preservation, like evolutionarily uh, congruent response with being on a plane, being out of control, being 30,000 feet in the air, that the body is just naturally conditioned to kind of be on a little bit more high alert because this is something that is, I guess you could say, quote unquote, abnormal. I mean, aviation is something that in the grand scheme of things from a human uh, being evolutionary standpoint is pretty dang new. So uh, our bodies just aren't used to it. But there is another subsect of individuals who uh, we've looked at their data and it goes nuts. Um, Like it is a significant increase in heart rate, especially on takeoff, on landing, turbulence. Like we see this really big dysregulated nervous system. Um, And so I wanted to speak to a lot of those individuals, but also speak to myself. As someone who does see, even though I, uh, uh, I guess you could say, consciously don't experience a lot of anxiety, um, my body experiences a bit of stress. So what do I do? So a lot of times I actually will just spend not a significant amount of time, but maybe two to five minutes prior to uh, me actually taking off. So I'll get on the plane. I'll just kind of do some meditation and some breath work just to kind of help ease the nervous system. It's just something that helps me to get comfortable with the surroundings, with the environment. It just really feels good. And then normally, like when we get up in air, I don't think about breathing a lot. Like I just try to maintain like good nasal breathing as we know the air quality in airplanes is not the best. So making sure that you breathe through uh, the nasal pathways is probably going to be your best bet. But then also too, I have noticed um, and I'm trying to condition this response is that if we do hit some rough air, uh, which inevitably happens when you're on a plane, is that I'll just try to focus on good slow paced, really high quality biomechanical breathing um, and really, uh, really kind of allow that to, to kind of get us through any type of rough patches of air. And then afterwards, I normally don't do a lot of, of breath work focus. I don't think it's necessarily bad, but that's my practice. And I think that again, for someone who is flying, especially if you experience some anxiety, the biggest thing that my recommendation is, is that you always try to condition the response of your nervous system that you want with the thing that is causing dysregulation. And I think that this is a, I mean, this is a behavioral strategy that psychologists would use no matter what, but especially for this situation, it's like, if we can condition the nervous system to respond differently every single time, you may still experience that level of physiological arousal. You may still experience a level of stress a level of anxiety. However, if we can blunt the significant effects of those so that it doesn't kind of unravel and kind of take your mind down kind of those places of like, hey, we're about to fall out of the midair, we're all going to die, like all these things that we can easily concoct when we're experiencing anxiety and we're experiencing turbulence per se. I think conditioning a different response, at least from a physiological perspective, is extremely helpful. And I've worked with a lot of individuals who have had to take that approach. So I'm curious, Patrick, any thoughts on, on that when flying any, your, your own personal practices that you have? I suppose it becomes easier the more you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first time if I, if somebody hasn't flown in quite a long time, it's always that little bit daunting. I would agree with you. 
is to be able to regulate your physiology and not to wait for the 20 minutes before you're about to um, take off, but to bring it into your everyday life. Hmm. Now, if you've, if you've got a flight tomorrow, well, start practicing it today and pay attention to your breathing. And if you're noticing that your breathing is getting a little bit faster and upper chest, just focus on the exhalation and focus on slowing down the exhalation because it's really about focusing on the exhalation for the body to tell the brain that everything is okay. If, if we are responding that our thoughts are changing our breathing patterns and our breathing is becoming faster and harder, well, the brain now is interpreting that the body is under threat and it's more likely to feed back into anxiety, feed back into fight or flight. The, the, on the plane itself, we have to bear in mind that the oxygen levels are less than what they would be at sea level. So a jet is pressurized to the atmosphere of about 9,000 feet. And if you were to wear pulse oximetry while you're at about 35 or 40,000 feet, your blood oxygen saturation typically drops down to about 91, 93, 92, maybe 93%. So in other words, you're on the verge of hypoxia. Now, that's not a bad thing. Um, it's just that you're at a height of about 3,000, um, sorry, 9,000 feet. It's not quite 3,000 meters, but probably about two and a half or 2,700 meters. Mm-hmm. So high altitude, we're very akin to, and at that height, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a stress height either, but at the same time, it has some little effect. I, I often use the planes as conservation of energy. Like for me, it's total downtime mm-hmm. um, and total downtime. Okay. I may watch a movie. For me, I consider it. I never do work on the laptop if I can help it on the plane. And number one is because I feel drowsy because of the drop to blood oxygen saturation. Mm. So I don't feel unproductive. Number two, why not take the time out, focus on my breathing, even if I put a movie on. Now, what used to help me was if there was a turbulent time, I'd always be up watching the air hostesses. And the reason being is because you can see even when the plane is jumpy, they're chatting away to each other. Yep. They're calm and composed. And for me, it was a great kind of benchmark. Now, if you start seeing the air hostesses jumping up and running and screaming <laughs> up, running up and down the corridor, now you know you're in trouble. Locking it, themselves it, it into their, locking themselves to their seats. Like they got the rosary <laughs> around their neck. Yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> then we should be all saying, we should be all saying something, but, uh, right. But normally, yeah, I kind of use, I use the air hostess or when you're not comfortable with flying, you're looking around and you'll see most people in the main are they're really calm and relaxed, you know, and that's telling. And we know the stats and we also know that sometimes it's useful just even looking at the caliber of the captain getting on onto mm-hmm. the flight. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see that he or she there, you know, it's, it's nice to see the person who's in charge. It is. And at least then you can have some comfort that there's somebody who's really looking after you. And mm. these guys are. Yeah. So yeah, I think it can be fun traveling. Now, the odd time I'll have a glass of wine, so I'll make it a bit more fun. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so fun. It's, travel can be fun. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. One thing that's really interesting um, that uh, I, I heard about, like in regards, because you were talking about like looking at the, at the pilots. Um, and I think that that's extremely mm. important and valuable. And there is a reason why a lot of the times like you will see them, they'll keep the door open. They'll say hi to you when you walk on, like they always are communicating with you and talking with you. And they're like, every pilot sounds the exact same when they come up on the speakers. I'm like, I feel like I've flown with you before because they all sound so similar. Um, and they just know they're, they're all very articulate. Like they just know what to say and they say it without like any ums or like, just like boom, like, you've done this before, which is great. But one thing that I have thought about, but also I, I, 
I've heard about. And this makes just complete sense. Like if you think about it from a logical, rational standpoint, is that these are people who have lives. They, 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 I would presume that they like their life. I would presume that they have family and friends and something outside of this plane. And if they thought for one second that there was something wrong with the plane or that they were not going to get there safe. Like it's their life at stake, lives at stake too. They're not going to take you or go anywhere where they feel like there's the potential that the plane is going to go down or we're going to have problems. And I, that is something I've always, again, I don't, I've never really had a lot of anxiety around flying, but it's something that I think about a fair amount because I'm like, that, that just makes sense. Like these individuals are professionals. I get it. Like when I'm on a plane, it's, it's in their control. Like this is not under my control whatsoever. However, these are professionals. These are experts who uh, my, my guess is, is that this Boeing 757 that they're flying is not their first time that they've done this. I guess it could be. It's got to be somebody's first time uh, at some point, but my guess is that it's not. And they're not going to put us in danger if their lives are going to be in danger as well. So it's just, again, something to keep in mind. And it's hard. Like if, if you have a fear of flying and you have a lot of anxiety around it, it's hard to think about those things rationally in that time. Like it's very difficult because the mind is going to move towards concocting worst case scenarios. Like we've talked about this a lot, um, especially if it's conditioned to concoct worst case scenarios. But I always come down to this point is that when we concoct worst case scenarios, the only thing that that serves to do is extend our suffering. It extends our pain. And the reason that it extends our suffering and pain is because if for some reason the worst case scenario comes to fruition, which it almost never does, but let's just say the worst case scenario comes to fruition. Well, you just extended your pain and suffering by worrying about it all the time. Like you're going to experience the pain and suffering of the worst case scenario that you've concocted happening, but you didn't have to experience, you made the choice to experience everything that came before it. So in other words, you chose to extend your suffering. And again, I know that may sound a little bit um, uh, harsh, but I think that that's kind of the key truth. Of, of who we are as humans is that we are the ones who make that decision and they feel sometimes like it's out of our control, but in the end we make our control. So uh, we, we do control that. So the one thing that we can control and we come back to as a practical suggestion is that you can control your physiology. You can control these aspects. It's best. And to your point, and I love that you mentioned this, Patrick, it's best that you train that level of control well before the anticipated event happens happens, especially if you have a plane flight coming, because what we know is that if we can condition that response, it's much easier to translate that to other events and scenarios. If we've done put in the hard work before than it is to say, well, I'm just going to kind of wait until it happens. Well, and it's not to say that those things won't be effective like breath work, but I think they're going to be a lot less effective than if you had really put in the time and effort to condition that response and to train that response prior beforehand. So yeah, but mm, to your point, yeah. travel can be fun, especially like you mentioned, if it's uh, been kind of a long day and you just kind of settle down with a nice glass of Cabernet. <laughs> That's absolutely. That's the key. I have a trip now in two weeks to uh, just a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, collaboration cures. So it's, it's about sleep. So yep. that's what I'll be doing, Jay. I'll, t I'll take your point on that one. There you go. I love it. I love it, man. So this is the part of the Q&A that Patrick and I do 
where we take questions that you submit. It can either come from email, it uh, can come from Instagram, it can come from wherever, and you ask us questions related to breath work and stress and anxiety and all things, uh, you know, health and wellness. And so we've got a few that were submitted um, that I think are really, really fun ones. Um, so let's go to the first one that comes from Chase. So Chase said, I am really loving breath work and find that I continue to get better at it the more I practice, but I'm still trying to figure out the best method of breathing during moments of anxiety. Very fitting because we've been talking about this a fair amount today. Should I use, and this is an interesting uh, aspect of the question, should I use Patrick's breathe light to breathe right exercise and not focus on a set pace of breathing or should I use more of the resonance type of breathing where everything is paced? Um, so this is an interesting question, Patrick, because we're talking about anxiety. And then we're talking about like with breathwork practices, should kind of the default be more of like changing as you kind of, as you like to say, the biomechanics, the biochemistry and the cadence. So slowing down the breathing, you know, making sure the breathing is light, using pr appropriate biomechanics, but not thinking about necessarily a set pace of like five seconds in, five seconds out, but really kind of just allowing the body to kind of like guide or a resonance type breathing, which I would always say too, should still be focused on those components of biomechanics, biochemistry, but cadence is more of a set pace. Maybe it is a even pace, five seconds in, five seconds out. Maybe it's a four second inhalation with a six second extended exhalation or something of that sort. So I'm, I'm interested, Patrick, um, because the one thing I will say is like, he's kind of asking like, what's the best practice? And I think I kind of know what your response will be on what the best practice is and what mine will be. But do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, should, should we default to something more like breathe light to breathe right? Or should we default to something that's more like regimented and where we follow a, a set pace? This is a, this is a good question because it's not so easy to give the answer to right. it. But I'll give you my couple of points on that. I, you know, I'm just thinking about somebody with anxiety. We'll think about somebody on that plane, you know, and their breathing rate is speeding up and they're breathing faster using the upper chest and they'll often feel air, air hunger. So they're, they're feeling that sense of suffocation that they're not getting enough air. And this is going to feed into the stress response. And in that instance, breathe light isn't going to work because mm. if you're already feeling air hunger, you, you never practice breathe light on top of the air hunger. So we have to think about how can we get rid of the air hunger, at least to help with it. It might be no harm just taking two full, big, slow breaths in and out through your nose. So you're, you're taking a full, big breath in through your nose, filling your lungs, and then a really slow breath out through your nose. And then another, you don't want to be hyperventilating on top of hyperventilation. But what I'm doing is taking full big breath in and out just to help alleviate air hunger. And with that, then, if you're feeling very stressed, I would say doing breath holds because you don't have to be focusing on your breathing. Mm -hmm. You're just holding your breath, which can help to stimulate the vagus nerve. And the way we would do that is breathe in, breathe out, and hold your nose. Five, four, three, two, one. Let go and breathe normal then for 10 to 15 seconds. And then do a breath hold again. Breathe normal for 10 to 15 seconds and do a breath hold again. And the breath hold is only between three and five seconds. There are only many pauses, hmm. only for short periods of time. And the premise there is also to help increase carbon dioxide in the blood to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain, which can have a calming effect on 
um, brain cells. Now, is there another way there is, you know, in terms of normally when we get anxious, we're breathing that little bit faster. We're breathing upper chest. Mm-hmm. It's very important to realize that when we're breathing fast in upper chest, there's a lot of air that stays in the throat, in the nasal cavity, in the bronchi, and in the first 16 branches of airways. In other words, the air that you're taking into your body doesn't necessarily get down to the small air sacs in the lungs. So it can impair gas exchange. So a very basic understanding of breathing is always think about nose slow and low. Now, I understand that when somebody is highly anxious, the last thing they might want to do is pay attention to their breathing. At that instance, hold your breath. Hmm. So if you're very anxious, hold your breath. If you're feeling that you can hold your attention on your breathing, keep your mouth closed. And you could go in through the nose Mm -hmm. and out through the nose, but always think about slowing down the exhalation. And have it low, if possible. You know, so you're having it low. I don't know about necessarily the cadence breathing and counting breathing is brilliant. But, Jay, I suppose this is going to be, what about somebody who's got a really fast respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute Mm -hmm. or 25 Mm -hmm. breaths per minute? Mm -hmm. And if we tell them to bring it down to six breaths, it's too much. I think this is going to be to the individual, even if we just think of no slow, low and not light breathing. So that's just my take on it in terms of anxiety. No, I think that's a, a great take. The one thing that, yeah, I, I was thinking initially um, is, you know, and this might just be the verbiage and me kind of going to vernacular uh, of the question that was asked, but I think the short answer, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here for you, Patrick, is that there is no quote unquote best practice for everybody. I think it's highly individualized. Um, I, I love it how like he just mentioned two, right? He mentioned breathe light to breathe right. So that low slope deep, t- deep type breathing that you've created for oxygen advantage and then he mentioned resonance breathing, which is one that I talk a lot about in biofeedback. Um, but it's not it's not that binary, right? It's, it doesn't need to be like dichotomous. And we say there's one or two and that's it. But you even just mentioned like short breath holds can be extremely helpful because you were right. You made the point that, well, what if somebody is extremely stressed and maybe they also have a high respiratory rate? So they're up at you know 20 breaths per minute. We take them down to six breaths per minute and they may start to experience what you mentioned earlier, which is air hunger on six breaths per minute and and, and that type of paced breathing that in and of itself could heighten their anxiety experience and therefore their physiology locks up even more. So I think that there are strategies, the way that I look at this and the way that I personally practice and the way I like to coach um, is that you should try them all in different types of scenarios. And if you try one and it's not helping, try something different. Don't say that I need to be married to this dogmatic view that it's like, boom, I use this practice. Everybody should use this practice and nothing else. You have to say, no, I'm going to try this out. And if you hit the jackpot and on the first go round, you got it right. Good. But that may not necessarily mean that in the next situation where you experience anxiety, that that one's going to be the one that you need in that moment. It may be something different. It may be that the cadence type of breathing as opposed to a breath hold is the thing that's most effective at that time. So I think that it's all a matter of practice. And again, and this is, and this is a point that I wanted to make, is that it's one thing to do it during moments of experience of anxiety. It's another 
thing to do it in times where you're not anxious. And I know that we're, I don't, I would say that we're beating a dead horse, but we're not. It bears repeating probably more than what you and I have even mentioned, Patrick. But it's this idea of how can we train the nervous system and then translate it to other situations, to other circumstances, to other events. And the best way to do it is under a state where we're not in duress. Now, it's obviously important to condition the response when we do experience duress, because again, that strengthens the neural networks and pathways that are associated with your nervous system in those events or circumstances. But it's equally, if not just as important, uh, or just, uh, if not more important, I should say, to do that when you're not in that state, uh, because you're thinking clearly, you're uh, allowing the body to become adjusted and regulate. So I like to just do an absolute mixture of things, not be married to one you know, approach or to one dogma. I mean, I just think that's the best way to go. It may not be for some people the sexiest answer because they're like, oh no, I want a school of thought. I want a philosophy to live by and I don't like you know moving away from it. Um, I've been, again, reading a lot about like the Stoics and Stoic philosophy. And there's some people who are like, if it's not Stoic, I don't live by it. Um, Or or like everything that's within the Stoic platform, like I, that has to be a part of who I live. If Seneca or Marcus Aurelius said it, then I must do it. And it's like, oh no, it's not that easy. It's like, you know, these are people, um, you know, who who died 2000 years ago and, you know, they stopped learning 2000 years ago. And so maybe they have, would have completely changed their mind on certain things given, you know, advances and biology and psychology and all these things that we know. So we have to not marry ourselves to certain schools and practices, but really try it all. And I think for Chase, yeah, Chase, the the, the take home here again is like, just, just try them all, practice different things. Like if you notice yourself like having difficulty with overall air hunger, then breathe light to breathe right may not be helpful. Maybe short breath holds could be helpful. Maybe try some resonance breathing, maybe even look outside of it um, and not say like, I need to even marry myself because now I hear, I hear the birds chirping saying, well, you've given three. So instead of two, I now have three options. No, there's more outside of that too. Like do your due diligence and learn. Uh, but I think that all in all, like it just is really going to come down to how you respond. Um, and it may come down to how you respond under di- different circumstances or situations. Totally. And I just step in there because you, you know, the word duress that you use there, Jay, because I suppose du- duress is different things to different people. Some people might be getting stressed if they're going in a zoom call and they can't find the link or they can't log in. And that could be enough to make them stress. And I suppose it's to start off with a small little stressor is just to dip your toe into the water. Things happen. Somebody, you might be waiting for your computer just to start up. You're feeling a little bit antsy about that. There's a great time to start focusing your attention or doing something with your breathing. You're watching something on television. There's a bit of aggression in the background. It's not affecting you, but at the same time, it's there. Bring your attention onto your breathing. And I think you're right. I think this is really about, you know, Kids in school, this should be taught from day dot that whenever a situation presents itself, the one thing that you have got some degree of control over, and I'm not going to say it's absolutely perfect, you know, because even it's like taming the mind, people will say, and if you were to read in a, a textbook, it's, it sounds very easy to do. But at the same time, you, we all have some degree of control over our breathing. I use it in my everyday life, just always small little things that are happening, you know, and it's very useful. And there's something very comforting that, that you have that, 
that whenever you want to tap into it, it's always there for you. And I suppose it's coming back to that analogy. You know, you've got the sea and the waves are turbulent on top. But as you deep dive, if you go down and down and down, there's a sense of pervasiveness and calm. Well, your breath can be that. The part in inner body can be that once we have the habit of just gently tapping in. I'd say to people, listen, dip your toe into the water. Go easy on yourself. But it's with a little bit of practice and awareness. They're great tools and you have them for the rest of your life. All right. Thanks, Chase, for that question. Really, really good one. All right. Next question. I'm very, I don't think this is a topic we've talked about, Patrick. I'm so interested to hear if you have any views or any thoughts on this one. This is something actually Ben Greenfield and I uh, did a Q&A maybe a week ago, two, two weeks ago, uh, where we covered this topic. So I was actually immersed a little bit more in some of the, the, the quote unquote science about this. But I'm very fascinated to hear your thoughts on it as a practice, if you have any, that is. Uh, this question comes from Shelly. Shelly says, what are your thoughts on alternate nostril breathing? Is there evidence that this can be any more helpful than double nostril breathing? Or I guess would say maybe more or less a normal breath. So alternate nostril breathing. I think if anybody is uh, wondering what that is, I'll provide just a little bit of an explanation and then I'll get you, get some thoughts from you, Patrick, and we can discuss it. But uh, uh, this comes from a lot of yoga practice, um, which is uh, based on the idea or the theory that if we want uh, we, the, a couple of things, uh, the one theory um, that we have in yoga practice is this idea that we have dominant um, nostrils for breathing. And then depending on that dominant nostril um, at any given moment, because the dominant nostril can change depending on certain things or certain circumstances, um, certain mind uh, sets of uh, states of mind, um, is that the breathing through the nostril or breathing through certain nostrils or singular nostrils can have certain effects on the body. It's thought that right nostril breathing, so plugging the left nostril and breathing through the right nostril, has more of this energizing, sympathetically driven effect. It's the way to kind of like increase overall energy mobilization, um, help us kind of like to be pumped up from a performance-based standpoint. And then also too, if we're experiencing, let's say, more stress, if we're experiencing more anxiety, then a lot of times the right nostril in, in this yoga practice becomes more the dominant nostril. The left nostril, when we plug the right and we have just the left nostril is a lot of times associated with more of like the relaxation effect, um, the more energy conservation effect, uh, the more um, parasympathetic output effect. Uh, and so th that's kind of like some of the theories behind why we might kind of utilize singular nostrils, but also too a part of yoga practice. And I would even say mindfulness practices as well that utilizes alternate nostril breathing. And when we say alternate, we mean just kind of switching back and forth um, to each of them or focusing on one or the other, depending on what state you're trying to induce, um, is the mindfulness effect that it has of switching. So being kind of more conscientious that you're breathing through one, you're breathing through the other, um, it instills more mindfulness. Whereas like if you're not thinking about the breathing or not, I would say more, you're not observing the breathing, then sometimes the mind can drift. So it's almost like this anchor for the mind. So that's kind of like the theory or the idea um, I'm curious, Patrick, is this something that um, you have much experience with, much thoughts on, anything that you integrate in your own breathwork practice or the, what you teach to, to uh, those who come to your classes? I'm curious your, your thoughts there. 
We, we use an exercise which involves walking with the mouth closed and tongue resting on the roof of the mouth. And we have everybody at the start of this exercise, we have them block one nostril. And the objective is that we are doing it to restrict breathing, to create a resistance to breathing, but also to bring people's awareness to the breath. Because when you block one nostril and you're forced only to breathe through one side of the nose, it increases the concentration of airflow. So it's easier for the person to follow their breathing. I've come across different signs over the years, and I haven't made up my mind in terms of left nostril. When you breathe through it, does it activate the right hemisphere of the brain and vice versa? It seems to have a difference also with left-handed people versus right-handed people. And if you breathe through your right nostril, that it's activating the left hemisphere of the brain, which, as you say, is more energizing. So if you're going out to give a public talk, you're better off blocking your left nostril to breathe in in and out through your right there's a couple of components about this. I remember doing Vipassana courses because I have a deviated septum and it's really badly deviated. And despite having an, an operation, my left side of my nose is typically more congested than the right. Now, with a normal individual, they should switch every 90 minutes. So we do have a nasal cycle that typically goes from about 90 minutes to I've heard as much as seven hours. I'm not sure about seven hours, but 90 minutes anyway. One side is dominant. They switch and they continuously are switching. When three or four days into the Vipassana, my left side, very much freed, um, you know, and it was surprising. And my right side was getting, and it might have been even three or four days, but I remember specifically struggling through the meditation because my left side is screwed up anyway. But it was freeing, but my right side now was getting stuffy, so the air hunger was getting quite challenging. And I can remember it, and I was thinking to myself, here is a case, okay, I can free the left side if I do the nose and blocking exercise, but normally it wouldn't happen during rest. So when I went into that deep, deep meditation, the, the left side started changing. So I think there's some truth in it, irrespective of some of the studies said that that's not true. So in terms of the practice, it feels. Now, the other thing about this, Jay, is that how about the individual who is blocking, say, their left nostril and breathing through the right But in the process of breathing through the right, they're taking these full big breaths, which is sacrificing their breathing from a biochemical point of view. And sometimes I feel that individuals are blocking one nostril to breathe through it to create awareness of their breathing because they can feel their breathing easier and it's helping to take them out of their mind and onto their breath. But in the process, could they be over breathing? So the practice of one nostril breathing can be very good but not to breathe to the points that you're filling your lungs full of air, because then that can be impacting your breathing from a biochemical point of view. And there's three ways to get your nose decongested anyway, if you want to help open up both sides, because maybe you have a deviated septum like mine, and maybe one side of your nose isn't going to work as best as it should anyway. The three ways are breath hold exercises will help to open up the nose, physical movement with your mouth closed helps to open up the nose, and sex helps to open up the nose. So you've got a choice there. there you, got, you, got, you got a choice. Patrick's recommendations. So. I'd, say, I'd say your listeners will be all going for the last one, Jay. What do you think? <laughs> That's right. They're going to be like, yeah, man. Okay, so Pat, Patrick, I've got the, uh, you know, the nasal breathing during exercise. Got that one down. I'm doing the unblocking exercises. 
Just got to add some more sex. There we go. Prescription has been provided. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what's very interesting about what you had to say, and and I hadn't really thought about it this way until you mentioned it, was this idea that, you know, I'd say like, if you want to practice alternate nostril breathing, go for it. Like if it's something that you find that is quite effective for you, go for it. But do not let it come to the sacrifice. Yes, you're going to, obviously, you're inevitably changing your biomechanics, at least in one component because you're not using both uh, uh, passageways in your nostrils. You're closing one and, and not using the other. So biomechanics are being changed a little bit, but it doesn't mean that you need to change the other biomechanics of breathing that you that that we instill. But the uh, also too, you don't need to change the biochemistry of breathing by switching up, um, taking these large kind of extreme inhales. I get your point that, yeah, there are some people who are like, well, that's the way I kind of feel it. It becomes, I become more mindful of it if I feel it that way. And that's good, but you can still harness the mindfulness skill without having to fully blast air into the lungs and then blast it straight out. So I would say keep that in in mind when you're doing it. The one thing that people might be interested in is that over the course of the years, um, because I've really dug into the research on this, over the course of the years where they've examined the effects of alternate nostril breathing and how does that impact overall nervous system functioning when I say nervous system I'm talking about both central and peripheral nervous systems um, there hasn't been a lot of study on it and the studies that have been had aren't the most compelling um, or conclusive studies but this is the nature of science right sometimes you get really interesting information that's just not overly compelling and that's okay. Um, we'll, we're going to get more research. Alternate nostril breathing research isn't uh, completely done. There are going to be tons of studies on this. But the ones uh, there's two studies that I want to talk about that were very interesting. One of them was quite recent and this is the one that Ben, and ben Greenfield and I talked about where they looked at alternost- uh, alternate nostril breathing with the theories that we've proposed um, here and they've all, they looked at uh, uh, people's brain waves via a QEEG which is a quantitative EEG. So it looks at the the power output of certain brainwave uh, signals under different circumstances or conditions. The one that they looked at when people were engaging in right nostril breathing, they were having a lot more activation in the frontal part of their brain and kind of the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe, which was increasing overall attention. They had increased alpha brain waves, increased beta brain waves as well, which helped to sustain attention. So we can see how that's actually associated with increased sympathetic drive. When people have a slightly increased sympathetic drive, attention tends to be more sharp. Uh, we tend, you know, and there's a, there's a tipping point, right? When anxiety gets too big, then boom, attention goes way down and we become quite distracted. But that was interesting. And then when they did left nostril breathing, they actually had more um, alpha output in the posterior part of their brain, which is associated uh, with meditators. When people meditate, they have increased theta and alpha brain waves in the back of their brain, uh, which is actually closer to what we call the occipital lobe, which is associated with sight. And there is some features of when you simply close your eyes, you increase your alpha brainwave state. So if anybody wants a quick brain hack, closing your eyes. So just shielding your eyes from visual stimuli increases that. But this was even more significant than that. They saw that left nostril breathing significantly increased overall alpha brainwave um, output within the posterior part of the brain. So it was a really interesting study. It wasn't done on a lot of people, but this was published. um, And it was some interesting insight that 
there might be something to it um, that that is worth at looking into, at least trying as a practice. The other study was on autonomic regulation, looking at heart rate variability. And what they found um, was that there were some instances of left nostril breathing leading to certain biometrics associated with heart rate variability being increased. So more of a parasympathetic response and then more of a reduction of that response when people breathe through their right nostril. So it's, it's, interesting studies. Like, again, I'm, I'm the first to say that, you know, these singular studies that we have always are like, oh, that's interesting. That's insightful. But it, it, it still opens up more questions of, okay, well, we want, I want replication. I want more in-depth studies. I just want a little bit more to, so that I can be like, yeah, I now can say kind of with confidence, like we know that there is an, there is this effect on our physiology when we switch nostrils. But again, to the point of like, regardless of whether or not like we have the scientific evidence that is going to uh, provide the foundation of us like recommending it on a science-based standpoint, people should at least, if you're interested, give it a try and see what you subjectively feel like outside of like necessarily measuring anything objective. Because um, who are we to say that if it's something effective for you, um, even if we don't have just this in crazy robust scientific literature on it, who are we to say? that you shouldn't do it simply because we don't have, uh, you know, the, the, the science behind it. It's like, where does the burden of proof lie? So, uh, yeah, that would, that would be kind of my, my only point to say there is kind of back to the basics, right? Give it, give it a go. Who cares? Try it out and see if you like it. (laughs) I think, I think you're so right. And you know, that's really interesting because it's not just attention that's in the the frontal part of the brain. It's also thinking Mm -hmm. Yep, our thinking mode. Yep. So maybe the next time if somebody feels that they're they're overthinking and they want to help to bring a calmness or to direct your attention from the front part of the brain to the to the back of the head is to block the right nostril to breathe through the left. We we've had conversations in terms of Dr. Mark Atkinson, we were having a, a discussion with him one day. I don't know if I brought him up the last time. I can't remember what his company is, but in any event, we were talking about where you place your attention in the brain to help bring a calmness to the mind and to deliberately take our attention away from the front of the mind to the center of the mind is where he was talking. And during the course of conversation, I was talking to him, we were saying, this has been something that's been happening to me for a long time. And I often feel a pressure towards the back of the head. And it's almost as if your, your head is, it's, there's a slight pressure there, which is not uncomfortable, but it can be there. And I often have my attention especially if before I go out on stage and I'm occupying the back of the head. And he's saying that the back of the head is intuition. But at the very least, I was taking my attention out of the front of the head and it came up at the weekend. We were thinking about, well, how can you purposely get your attention then out of the front of the head into the center and then the back? And we were saying, well, gently just tap the area of the brain to help maybe bring your attention to that part. But this could be another aspect of it. Block your right nostril, breathe through your left nostril. And if that's directing your attention to that. And Jay, we tend to feel it anyway. You know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners here that when they do close their eyes and maybe they're directing their eyes upwards, that they're directing their eyes upwards, they're closing their eyes. And it's almost that they go into a state of relaxation. And you, you can almost feel that you're, your attention is immediately shifting to the back of the brain, which is really, really nice in terms of being able to quieten the mind. 
And by the way, this is another thing up for conversation. So I'll tell you anyway, a small thing we've been doing. We did it at the weekend. We've done it a couple of times since. We had the breathing instructor sit down with a piece of pen and, pen and paper and asked, over the course of three minutes, I need you to focus on your breathing. And every time your mind wanders, mark a tick on the piece of paper. So we've had people do this before. And you know the way I'd, I'd have an idea in my head, well, the, the human mind wanders a lot. And, but how often does it actually wander amongst a group of individuals? And what, what do you think? What, I just put it out there for you. How many times over the course of three minutes would you expect somebody's mind to wander? if they were focusing on their breathing and every time the mind wanders. Now I know this is going to vary from person to person. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, over the course of three minutes, um, I would think that the, uh, I would imagine maybe plus or minus. We'll go, I'll go with 15 times. Hmm. And even I would have thought that to be quite low. That was the upper end of the group that we had. So the, the upper end was 16 and the lower end was three, three times. And I've been practicing breathing exercises for a long time. My, my, my mind wanders more than three times. That over must have been a monk in the group. Where they, did they practice as a monk for uh, 15, 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> because I remember back in the day, I'd have hardly had my attention on my breathing for two seconds before the mind wanders. And the scientist in me, Patrick, m makes me think, hmm, were these people like presenting their ideal self when they, <laughs> when they were marking their numbers or were they being like legitimate? We did it anonymously, right? So we asked people, they all had the same paper and we asked people to mark it on a piece of paper, but then fold over the piece of paper, but give it to another instructor in the group. And there's no names so it was totally anonymous. And we did it here in Galway as well, just the week before that. And 16, we didn't, in the Galway group, they didn't even have 16. So 16 was an outlier in the Belfast group. So yeah. I mean, as someone who even practices every day and, and, and has it as a very you know sacred time for me, if you will, uh, you know, I think that I'm, I'm someone who has always battled with just kind of a level of distractibility. Um, I don't know if we call it ADHD, but like my, my brain just goes, like I'm constantly thinking through things. And so to kind of try to tame that can be quite a task at sometimes. But even for me, after years of practice, like I would probably assume that I would still find myself uh, floating away 15 or 16 times in a matter of three minutes. But the one thing that I remember, and this is, comes from a lot of meditation classes that I have taken and taught, is that it's not how many times you go away, it's how many times you come back. It's the recognition that you went away. And we always say, like, what's worse, going away 15 times but always coming back or going away one time and never coming back? And that is to me like the key component of mindfulness that I want people to keep in mind is that it's always about how many times do you catch yourself and you're aware of it and but bring yourself back. At least that's what I'm going to hold on to until I'm, I'm told otherwise, Patrick. <laughs> I think it sounds really good. And here's another question, Jay. With practice, as we do this over the years, the tendency for the mind wanders is also less. Yep. Is it by 20%? 30%, 40%. And again, right. I know I'm only putting a figure out there. Dan Harris's book was really good when it was back a few years ago, 10% yep. happier because yep. he kind of said, 
well, 10% is a great, 10% is great. It's worth doing something for 10% because sometimes we feel my mind is all over the place and I want it to be absolutely quiet. So I want right. it to be quiet 100%, but that doesn't happen. That's it. But it's even getting those increment. So he was honest when he said 10%, you know, and then you might have others that might say, well, it's 70%, but 10% is something. Oh, it's something. Yeah. And it could be, I mean, it could be life changing for, for somebody. I mean, yes. just experience 10%, man, it could be life changing for them to experience 1%. I mean, I think about some of the, cl- the people more in the clinical side of things for me, um, you know, back in, back in my day when I was doing a lot more clinical work and it's like, if you could give a person just one extra percent level of happiness, one since a, a sigh of relief at 1%, like the, they'll put in all the time and all the money they can to get that um, because it would be life-changing yeah. for them. For others, they're kind of like, oh, that just sounds like marginal and sounds tiny. But for some people, again, like that for their life is very meaningful. Yeah. All right, Patrick, yeah. I think we've got one more that we're going to go through. We've talked about this one a fair amount. Um, well, I won't say a fair amount, but we've talked about it uh, on the podcast before, and maybe not necessarily as a question, but kind of like in and out. But I really like this question because I think that you and I both align on a response here, but I think it's well worth us communicating and bantering uh, on. But this one comes from Dave. And the question is, for a beginner in trying to improve mental health, is it best to start with meditation or breath work? With either one, what's a good first step or starting place? Uh, so, uh, you know, again, like the one point that I think you'll, you and I will both try to make is that we're not trying to say, hey, one is better than the other. Um, I don't think that we necessarily can make that argument. And I also think too that like a lot of, there's a lot of overlap and you can do both of them at the exact same time, um, especially kind of with some practice. But really what Dave is asking, especially in regards to overall mental health and mental wellness is what's a, where's a better place or what was, is your recommended place to start meditation or with breath work. So I'm curious, I'll punt this one to you, Patrick, first, and then I'll kind of fill in with anything um, if we significantly differ, which I don't think we do. Oh, we might. We Who might. Knows? Yeah, we might. Let's see. <laughs> so here we go. Baited breath. Yeah. <laughs> I remember back in 2010 to 2013, I was going around Ireland. Economically, we were in a bad place here. There was a lot of anxiety. And I had about 3000 people in my door. I was giving courses on mindfulness and functional breathing bringing the two together, because I think there is a tremendous overlap. And everybody who came in my door, I asked them, have they meditated before? And bear in mind that a lot of these were coming in with anxiety and panic disorder, because that's what the course was aimed for. It was aimed at that group. I have to say, Jay, a lot of people who had practiced mindfulness didn't stick with it. And they found it frustrating. And the takeaway, and 90% of them were females attending the courses. And I took a couple of points from that. One was, why aren't males doing functional breathing and mindfulness? And number two, why were the very people with anxiety and panic disorder that when they did dip their toe into mindfulness, why didn't they stick with it? So then it begs the question, the effectiveness of something is only as effective when you put it into practice. And then I have to ask, should we be looking at giving some people tools to help address their physiology, to help balance the autonomic nervous system, to bring a quietness to the mind, which will then in turn allow the person to practice 
meditation, awareness from the breath, body, and mind. And we can't ignore the role of sleep in this. You know, here, like, and the other, like, there was a study that was carried out in Britain, in the United Kingdom. Only it was published just about a month ago, the British Medical Journal. They looked at thousands of children who were apparently practicing mindfulness. And they concluded that mindfulness doesn't work with children. And it's not that mindfulness is not working with the children. It's just that the kids aren't practicing it. So, so what can we do then with somebody? Like, can you imagine somebody with a lot of emotional turmoil and we're asking them to pay attention to the mind? It's going to amplify their thoughts. It could add to their stress. Can you imagine them then even just to focus on their breathing? Could it be making them feel anxious, the very focus on the breath? So sometimes I would start off with even just taking your shoes shoes off and going for a walk on bare grass, breathing in and out through your nose, going for a massage, humming, taking a soft breath in and that really hum, long, prolonged exhalation, doing small breath holds. You could do it sitting or you could breathe in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose while walking for 10 or 15 paces, which is a small breath hold while walking. And all of these tools, along with if you feel comfortable then, taking that soft breath in through your nose and that really slow and relaxed, gentle exhalation and softening your breath to the point of under-breathing if you're comfortable, getting your mouth closed with sleep, during sleep, adopting good sleep hygiene practices. Now, I know that sounds a lot, but what I'm trying to say is, why not address our physiology first, improve our sleep quality and bring a natural calmness to the mind. And then we can be, and in the very practice of breathing exercises, to breathe light, to breathe right, taking that very soft breath in and the relaxed and slow, gentle breath out, there is a tendency for the mind to be anchored onto the breath. You can stimulate the vagus nerve. You're increasing blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. And for people to pay attention to the saliva in the mouth, for me, it's a great little tool to tell you if you're feeling stressed or if you're activating the body's rest and digest response. So normally when we're working with, with a group of individuals, especially with anxiety, for me, it's the challenge. How can I give them breathing exercises without put, putting them into a stress response? So we use the temperature of the hands as a gauge. We use whether they're feeling sleepy as a gauge, and we use increased watery saliva as a gauge. So we might practice off just doing small breath holds for two seconds because I want to see how do they react to the feeling of suffocation or I shouldn't even use that word, which I don't tend to in that group, but air hunger. And then I might do it walking for three or four paces and just asking people. And it's getting them out of the head and using the breath holds. And then we would progress to the breathe light to breathe right, but only do it for 30 seconds because, again, I want to check how are they reacting to this. And everybody's going to be a bit different and I want to kind of play with the breath. So for me, there's mindfulness is, is tremendous. But let's look at breathing, functional breathing, and doing it very gently with this group. And let's look at sleep and then bring in the awareness of the breath. So that's my take on it. I think, you know, it, it, it's going to be different to the individual. But even in the whole realm of mindfulness, like, what's the word awareness mean? Like for me, the take on awareness is to have some idea of, what's occupying your your thought activity you know because a lot of times thinking is going on in the background we are reacting to our thoughts as if thoughts are truth but yet we don't actually pay attention to what we're thinking about and 
for me, even there should be focusing on the breadth and becoming more aware of the breadth first was always the easiest when I started off in this journey because the mind, the mind wants to take control. And any time that we can take the attention out of the mind and onto the breath, even if it's just for two to three seconds, we're helping to bring some quietness to the mind. And then into the body, not just to be ahead, present moment awareness, and then keeping an eye on the mind or paying attention to what's going on. But yeah, that's that's my my yeah. journey. Yeah, no, those are those are great thoughts, and I appreciate them. The first experience that I had with leading a mindfulness group was when I was a resident, and I was working with veterans. And these were veterans who experience who experienced trauma, um, have a lot of comorbid physiological symptoms. And we took them, I took them into their first mindfulness group and I led it and I thought, oh, they're going to love this. Like they're going to just find that there's so much peace and tranquility here. And I did the first, this is the, the story. I did the first session and I, you know, was really excited and I opened up conversation. I said, all right, guys, how, how was that for you all after doing, you know, first mindfulness meditation and the chatter started like I couldn't get out of my brain. All I could think about was this, this, and this, like now I just feel like more revved up. And for me as like a young clinician, I'm like, Oh, I'm in trouble. Like, how do I like recover from this? And it was just a really interesting experience because I was like, I didn't expect that. I thought that they were all going to say like, yeah, like the mind quieted because you know, that's what you experience when you do a, a meditation. You know, I was able to kind of like get into the zone. I was in a flow state. No, it was not. And again, it's not to say that people when they ex- do their first meditation that they don't experience this, but if that's what you experience and you say you, you know, give it a second shot, a third shot and you continue to experience it, it's, you're going to quit. Like you're just going to quit. It's not serving a purpose for you. It's not effective. But then when we started uh, doing our first more of like focused breathing type session, they all loved it. And they said, well, that was something that was effective for me. I could feel it. And my mind calmed down. So it was this idea that if we went to the mind to help communicate to the mind or help to heal the mind, it wasn't effective for these individuals. But if we went to the body first to help with calming the mind, then that was the thing that they really found a lot of help and motivation. So for me, I, while I do not kick mindfulness or meditation, I think it can be extremely valuable. I think that unfortunately, it can be a very difficult place for a lot of people to start because it's very heady. It's very cognitive. Um, it's something where like, if you have trouble with calming the mind, it might even provide you with more trouble. So I like the idea very much to your point that if we start with the physiology, if we start with the body, it's a great stepping stone to then beginning to combine more mindfulness-based practices, more meditative-based practices with breath work because we've already set a foundation. We're helping to uh, best control the nervous system and exert that autonomic regulation. And then when we can do that and we have that skill developed, then mindfulness just tends to be a lot more fruitful, a lot more powerful, a lot more robust. So I like the stepping stone of breath work to mindfulness or to meditation just simply because it can be a challenge for people to just jump in without any type of autonomic control or regulation to a mindfulness practice as opposed to breath work. So I think, again, you and I are on the same page there. It's like we don't knock mindfulness. We don't knock meditation, but we also see kind of how 
if you avoid, not avoid, but if you do not utilize the steps of gaining better autonomic regulation and autonomic control, then that it's a really difficult path that a lot of people are not going to stick with. And I've just found that the attrition or the churn, if you will, for breath work tends to be a lot lower than those who kind of just jump into the deep pool that is meditation. And a lot of people do it because they hear like, oh, such and such celebrity is doing meditation or mindfulness. Like this guru is doing mindfulness. Like I hear it everywhere they're doing mindfulness and then they do it and they think, my goodness, what's wrong with me? My mind just kind of keeps going. How do these other people do it? And it's sometimes just easier to avoid and give up than it is to like put in the practice. But what we think and what we're saying is that if you try a different practice, very much a lot of cross pollination, but a different practice, which is using breathing as kind of the first stepping stone, I think that that can be a beautiful gateway or lead in to combining that practice with meditation. So that's yeah, my take on it as well, which is kind of sounds pretty similar and online in line with what you said, Patrick. For sure. For sure. Well, I think that that's going to do us. I know we've gone for a little while now. It's been all close to an hour and a half of recording this podcast. So Patrick, uh, how about, how about we wrap it up today? Um, I don't have anything to, to give away. I know we normally do a giveaway at the end of this podcast, but just to be completely transparent, um, I don't have it with me. <laughs> My phone's somewhere in the room and I know we got to wrap the podcast up. So I'll use that review um, to give some goodies out, some Hanu goodies the next time we do this podcast. But Patrick, it's been a pleasure having you on, man. As always, thank you for bringing your knowledge and your wisdom. And I know that this was helpful to all of the Hanu crew. So thanks again for being on, man. Likewise, Jay. I think it was uh, it was very enjoyable. Love the chats. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. Oh,